Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by Caleb Gale. Caleb is a scholar, Northeastern University professor, and award-winning journalist, and now the author of a brand new book called We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creeks, American Identity, and Power. The book tells the story of a Native American tribe called Creek Nation, which two centuries ago both owned slaves and accepted Black people as full citizens. It examines the role of the government and white supremacy in the fight for citizenship and the marginalization of Black Americans since then. It also looks at the what-ifs and possibilities of belonging. Our book club pick for July is Season of Migration to the North by Tayeb Salih. We will be discussing the book on July 27th with Elamine Abdel-Mahmoud. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. And if you love the show and want more of it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join The Stacks Pack. We've got bonus episodes, a super active Discord community, monthly book club meetups, and more. It's also a great way for you to show your support for the work we do on this very super duper independent podcast. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. And thank you to two of our newest members, Benjamin Cruz and Rebecca G. Also, of course, a huge thank you to everyone who is already in the Stacks Pack. And now it's time for my conversation with Caleb Gale. All right, everybody. I'm very excited today. I am joined by Caleb Gale. He is the author of We Refuse to Forget, a true story of Black Creek's American identity and power. Caleb, welcome to the Stacks. Tracy, this means so much to me. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to talk about your book. I I went on quite a journey reading it, which I will tell you about. But first, I would love for you to tell the readers a little bit about the book in about 30 seconds or so. Sure. Yeah. The best way to describe the book, it's the story of a of a family representative of so many other families of black folks who once could consider the Muskogee Creek Nation their political homeland. Um, that they were emancipated in after the Civil War, that they rose to power in, that they became quite astute, wealthy, and prosperous in, but were then expelled from almost 100 years later in 1979. And now the very descendants of those people who once called that place home are now suing to get back in. So in one sense, it's the story of a family, but in another very important sense, kind of the story of all of us and how we Mm. decide 
or how we, in some cases, don't get to decide who we are, but rather we have to try and sort ourselves into boxes that none of us ever created. Yes. Okay. That was very good. I am here to tell the people really quickly my experience of reading this book. I was a little nervous. I was like, I don't know if I'm interested in this book. I just don't know if I could do it. And then I started and I struggled in the beginning. And the reason why I struggled was the same reason why I wasn't sure if I could read the book, which is that my knowledge of like World War II era and post and pre and all of that stuff is really shitty because, and this gets to the point of your book, the American education system really doesn't do that very well. And so I felt like overwhelmed by not knowing. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, I can't read this book because I don't have any context because I was failed as a child. (laughs) And then I got like deeper into the book and I was like, okay, I'm great. I'm actually really loving this. But I was like so intimidated by this book, but the payoff was like a thousand percent there. I haven't stopped thinking about certain things, which, which we'll talk about today, but for people who are picking up the book, if you feel stressed out at the beginning or you feel like you're floundering, don't worry. Caleb will collect you and help guide you on this journey. But for sure, I was like, I'm too stupid for this. Like I was texting people who had read it and I was like, are you guys sure I can read this book? And they were like, yes, get over yourself, you weirdo. And I was like, I'm (laughs) too dumb for this. So anyways... That I just want to say to people was the journey that I went on. And it's worth it's worth it once you kind of figure out how Caleb is crafting the book, which is the first place that I want to start. You're a character in this book, for sure. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me about it is that your family immigrated to America from Jamaica. You grew up in New York City for a little bit, and then you moved to Oklahoma. And this story like sort of mostly takes place in and around Oklahoma on, you know, Creek land. So what was Creek land that became Oklahoma, which is where you then lived. I'm wondering kind of like how you found your way to this work and like what captured you about this story, since I think so often people write about what they know or, you know, who they are. So I'm wondering why you were like, this is the story I want to tell. To be honest with you, I think I wrote it because I was haunted by it. And this was a way in which I could exercise some demons, right? That had been haunting me since I was a kid, right? So the book for your readers starts, you know, when I'm about eight or nine years old and I'm interacting with kids who look just like me, but in some ways are trying to kind of tease out certain distinctions, right? They're saying, I got Indian in me as a way of distinguishing themselves from me. And and oftentimes, you know, that's a phrase that a lot of folks probably heard growing up. But for me, as a kid who already didn't feel like he belonged because of my immigrant identity, I knew that this, something about what they were saying was different. I did dismiss it as myth as Mm -hmm. a kid, right? I Kids bragging on the playground. But to some great extent, it wasn't until I was much older. And I was, you know, sitting in an office at the Guardian that I realized that the story meant a whole lot more, that in fact, those kids who said they had Indian in them were actually hearkening back to a history that was far more powerful than Mm -hmm. they realized, um, that they were actually kind of the transmitters of knowledge that oftentimes, as you mentioned, is kind of hidden from view, especially in our textbooks, especially in my textbooks growing up in a place like Oklahoma. And Mm -hmm. then when what it did, it forced me to then look back over all of the experiences that I had growing up in Oklahoma, the names of the towns, the names of the streets, the 
practices that were done in our schools to kind of commemorate a very different vision of what life was like for people who were here first and what it meant that all of a sudden I realized that I had been living with certain ghosts. And so perhaps I can haunt some other people to exercise right. some other demons and perhaps, you know, even demystify, right? Mm. The, the challenges that even you experienced when approaching this topic about anything dealing with the civil war before, right? Uh, so I, I completely understand where you were coming from, but likewise, right, I, I, I knew I needed to exercise those demons. Yeah, I, I'd love for you to be slightly more specific about what that distinction that you felt like people were making who were like, oh, I got Indian mm. in me. Like, what specifically was that distinction to you? Because I think there are people who are listening who will be familiar with that. Yeah. But I think there's also people who've never heard that phrase. Yeah, I think it was twofold, right? So I think one distinction was on the basis of kind of physical characteristics that to some extent were trivial, right? Oftentimes it would be them trying to talk about why their skin might be, might hue a little bit lighter than mine, even mm -hmm. though they were black. Why their hair curled in a particular pattern that was different than mine. But I think also it was a way of signaling to me that, look, I'm from here, right? Mm. I, my, I got roots here which in some cases, especially as a kid of an immigrant, of immigrants rather, like you, you don't really feel near as much that you have a place here, right? That mm -hmm. most of your life is really proving both to yourself and to your family, as well as to the world around you that you do have a place here. So I think for a lot of kids, it was almost them distinguishing that, no, I actually belong here. I have mm -hmm. roots here. I, my blood runs deep into this soil. Right. Okay. I'm going to ask you this question and I don't know how to ask it delicately. So I'm just going to ask it, <laughs> but I know that it's something that I'm, I'm certain you've thought about it and talked about it. Cause I know that you're in the world of academia as well as like journalism. And so do you wonder, did people ask you, was there ever a conversation about, is this Caleb's story to tell? Mm. My sister-in-law is an academic. She is Chinese and white American, but she focuses on black and indigenous people. And I know that's a conversation that she has a lot. And so I'm wondering, you know, was there pushback? Did you hear from Creek and black Creek people being like, well, you're not, you know, you're not even from here. Like, <laughs> why do you get to tell this story? Yeah. I mean, so I got that. I, I think, yes, would be the easy answer to that question. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but to some extent, one, I get it. Two, yeah. when I actually look back on so many people who have done histories, not just of this kind, but of many others, right? Um, a lot of them haven't looked like the people who have been through it, right? Right. The first person that really kind of called what happened to the group of people that I talk about in this book, the Black Creeks, who just like flat out was like, oh, no, it's out and out racism, was a guy well into his like 70s or 80s named Daniel Littlefields, who is a white dude who has a PhD in like English and lives in mm -hmm. Arkansas and runs something called the Sequoia <laughs> National Research Center, right? Like as distanced from the lived experience of those people, but rather kind of subordinating kind of myself to the process of listening to people actively to engage in a sort of inquiry that's appreciative. Um, but I think also more importantly than that, like though this story, this micro history, if you will, is very much unique to the folks who were involved in it, the ramifications of it apply to all of us, 
Mm-hmm. And the questions that they're asking are questions that almost every single one of us have had to ask. Or if you feel as if you haven't listening today, <laughs> right, you probably will face these same questions, right? Like, who do you belong here, right? Mm-hmm. Do you fit mm-hmm. in? What what do you have to leave behind in order to be a part of this experience that we call being an American, right? And so to some great extent, right, their stories are very much so our stories. And hopefully by diving into their stories, we can better understand who we are supposed to. Yeah. I just want to say for anyone listening, I don't agree with the idea that you have to, you can only tell your own story. I think that that's really narrow thinking. And I found books written by people who, you know, it it is their their families, their stories, their cultures who have done a horrible job. And then I found books written by like straight white dudes that are fantastic. And so I don't I don't think that anyone's entry point. I think it depends on, you know, how you handle the story, if it's handled with care, if you do your due diligence, all of those things. So I just want to say that for anyone who's listening, who's like, I can't believe she thinks that I don't think that. (laughs) Anyways. okay. so to the point that I was making earlier about like the history and specifically like the history of indigenous people in America, it's taught so freaking poorly in this country. Just like I'm from California where people allegedly are better about these things. (laughs) And like I didn't learn any of this. So Mm -hmm. I don't I mean, I'm sure it's different in Oklahoma where you're from or where you grew up. But even still, I think in a place like California, it was so bad. I can't like if that's the best we could do, it's like pretty horrendous. Um, but you kind of get at this in the book. And like, what is the purpose of not teaching this? Like, what is the purpose of us not remembering, being taught to not remember these stories? And who does that serve? Yeah, yeah. I mean, not remembering these stories indicts America. It chastens it on in every way imaginable, right? By telling the stories of those who lived abundantly even on the margins of society, right? We indict America for what it is. We indict America's kind of linear history that valorizes a bunch of white dudes, many of whom made their bones enslaving people, pushing people who were here first further west or into, as as you know, one of the most famed historians on this topic, Andrew DeBeau called, onto the road to disappearance, right? Like that's, mm. it tells us the true history. Who it serves are the very, Sadly, men, usually almost exclusively white men that it valorizes, right? Like by not telling these stories, we we strip away the humanity of people, right? The full humanity of people who is who we ascribe only goodness, right? We we right. we make people like George Washington, these vaunted characters who were seemingly completely averse to any form of temptation or Um, averse to doing any bad thing. No, he did awful things. That's why he was known (laughs) as town destroyer, right? And so I felt like in many cases, what I was doing in this book was sullying the reputation of certain people we either know to be heroes or that we quietly sing as heroes. When Mm -hmm. in actuality, right, remembering this history, maybe it does tear them down as heroes, but maybe it also allows us to see them as fully human, right? Right. To to decenter their position within our historical memory collectively and individually. Right. And so for me, it meant a lot to give these characters the full treatment. Right. Because even in so doing, there were other people who were, in fact, in this book, white men who did deserve to be valorized, but were not remembered fully for who they were. 
right? In mm -hmm. part because their stories, their actions oftentimes, again, did the same thing that my existence, that your existence, Tracy, that mm -hmm. so many others' existences do. It, it, it chastens and it indicts America for the wrong America has done. Yeah. So this is a little off topic, but I think it's on topic. I, <laughs> I you know, we're recording this the last week of June 2022. The Roe verdict, all the Supreme Court shit is coming out right now. It's a nightmare. But there was a thread on Twitter that I saw last night from I think around the time of the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, actually. And this white woman was talking about the white social contract. And mm -hmm. a thing that I have really struggled with is I grew up in a family where like when someone did something wrong, it was like immediately addressed mm -hmm. and then like sort of forgiven, but like not forgiven in the way that's like thoughts and prayers, you're forgiven, but sort of like Caleb, you fucked up, <laughs> you know, you broke my doll on purpose. Yeah. You're in trouble. You need to take a break. And then five minutes later, like we're all hanging out again and we still love you because you're family. Correct. And one of the things that I've really struggled with about the ways that I see you know, this valorization of these like founding fathers and all these people is like, well, why can't we just admit that they were bad? Because like we all admit that Martin Luther King was having an affair and like he's still a hero mm -hmm. and he's still valorized. And this thread that I saw last night about the white social contract was saying that in in white in the white social contract, you're in if you sign on. And we will protect you if you sign on. And if you do the things that this group says, no matter what, we will protect you, which is why a person like Kyle Rittenhouse, who objectively has done horrible things, mm -hmm. regardless of the law, is accepted and lifted up because he leaned into what the white group being was saying was the place to be. And it wasn't until reading this thread that I understood why they didn't just say you know, Thomas Jefferson was a rapist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he was a child. He was a child pedophilic pedophiliac or whatever the fuck you call them. <laughs> but I'm like, it doesn't make sense to me. And now I, for the first time, am like finally have words and like a way to think about this that's really, really helpful because it just had never, ever made sense to me. Yeah. That's not a question. <laughs> no, but I mean, to some extent, right? Like, that contract that you're talking about assigns a wider birth, right, of activity that's allowable, right, to still then be considered good, right. Whereas, and like the people and the people who like you and I in this book, the white men in this book that you and I might say are like sort of did actually do good things or like were helpful in some ways. Those are the people we don't remember because they right. didn't fully buy in to the thing that was Andrew Jackson's America. Right. Or like Andrew Johnson's America or like, you know. Yep. And so I feel like that all of a sudden makes the people who are the white men who are forgotten make a lot more sense to me Definitely. now in a way that it never it didn't even occur to me as I was reading this book. I was like, why don't we know about this guy? And now I'm like, oh, because he wasn't all in on the white, the full white dream. He snitched on the homies, essentially. Exactly. Is the better way. Like, <laughs> exactly. I, it's just, we, you know, that's that's definitely what that's what that's what has happened throughout history for sure. Right. OK, so I heard you in a conversation with KSA Lehman last week talking about this book. It was fantastic. If there's a link to it, I'll link to it in the show notes. But 
in the book, we talk about slaves to the American colonists in America and then slaves to the Creek people. And there's, you know, some distinctions there. And I mean, there's big ones. I shouldn't dismiss them. But there are distinctions there in many cases. I heard you say that it was really hard for you to accept that Native American people, Creek people owned slaves. Does that information make more sense to you? as you got further in this history and realized that there was so much erasure of black people in Creek nation or like, I was a little surprised too when I started the book. And then by the end I was like, Oh, this really fucking tracks. So I'm wondering if you sort of had that experience. And also I'm curious why you were so resistant to the idea that native people could have had slaves. You know, I think like kind of what we said earlier, right? Like I find it and someone like an Anne Lamont could write this way better than I could, but like there's something to be said by how we kind of allow people to be fully human. Right. Mm. And we accept all of the consequences associated with people's humanity. Right. And so to some extent, right. Like I just couldn't bring myself, right. Because the, the way the history is told is that like, Everyone who was marginal, anyone who was marginalized could never have lived abundantly. Anyone who was marginalized could have never done anything wrong. Anyone right. who was marginalized kind of sat within a very narrow set of experiences. And as such, right, like I never allowed myself to look at a complicated view of history. And that's in part due to schooling. That's in part due to the sort of schooling that I had in a very mm-hmm. kind of fundamentalist, Christian, conservative high school and junior high school and elementary school, right? Which is like a different podcast for a different day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had a lot of questions about two that I left off. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, to some extent, like, I, I didn't want to fully accept it because then I would be opening myself up to looking at all of history. And also, I think all of a sudden, the cultural context within which I operate just completely stood on its head. Right. So to some extent, like, yes, when I got further into the history, did it make more sense? Yes. When it when it became clear to me the distinctions and the type of slavery between kind of the American colonists and others, did it make more sense? Yes. When I realized kind of the false choices that were provided to those who were here first, specifically the Muscogee Creek Nation, did did it make even more sense? Oh, without a doubt. But it took a long time to get myself to a to, to be okay with the fact that people aren't perfect, <laughs> right? right? And right, that right, right. regardless of whether or not you're on the margins or within the center of society, like you are fully capable of being human in all of its different ways. Yeah. I think in the last few years, there's really been like a lot of conversation around um, anti-Blackness and not as something that like everyone can have moments of some greater than others, including black people. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was helpful for me entering this book because I was like, I'm not like, I didn't feel like I didn't have to negotiate any of of that stuff in my head. I was like, yeah, this tracks like, you know, and, and that doesn't take away from all of the ways that indigenous people have been subjugated and abused and all of that. But I was just like, yeah, it can be a both and moment for me. Okay. This is a big question that I have for you. And I Uh don't even know how to articulate it because again, my education around indigenous 
history is very, very lacking and has only started in the last few years. So please forgive me if I do this very undaintily. You already have the forgiveness. Don't worry. Okay. Thank you. you. I just get so nervous when I know that I know the question, but I'm like, I want to say it properly. But I also (laughs) I'm so I'm just anyways, not a delicate human. Anyways. Okay. I want to talk about blood quantum. Mm. And I was told years ago, like maybe in the last five or six years, that anyone who had a connection to like a Native American tribe could become a member of the tribe at any point if they wanted to. And that the percentage of, I'm using air quotes on percentage of their blood Mm -hmm was not a factor mm. that you if you joined in a tribe you were considered fully that thing mm. if you were willing to like commit yourself to the people of which you were joining that's how it had been taught to me i also of course remember in like the 90s some headline of like there are no more full-blooded native americans in the country or like you know some maybe it was the state i don't know there was some headline when i was like a kid and i could be making it up because i was again a kid (laughs) but those two things don't square in my mind Mm -hmm. and i'm from reading the book i sort of feel like what i'm getting is that blood quantum is made up but also super relevant into for tribal membership. So I'm going to ask you to explain to people what blood quantum is or people who don't know, and also what it means to be a full or mixed blood mm-hmm. creek. And then tell me if my earlier understanding is right or wrong, because I'm, I'm a little confused. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's relieve some of the pressure. So like to some okay. extent, there are elements to what you said that are are just spot on and directionally, right? You're You're on the right path. I think okay. the the best way to kind of explain all of this is to take one step back and remember okay. that what we're dealing with are nations, sovereign nations, right? And like any nation around the world, they have rights to create pathways to citizenship, ways of validating citizenship, right? And that blood quantum was not something that these nations cooked up one day, right? That in fact, they came, blood quantum, the concept and its implementation, its enforcement came externally from, you guessed it, a lot of really racist white people. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to the whites. (laughs) Nailed it. Yeah. And one guy in particular named Henry Dawes is, There are a lot of people who contribute to that that I write about, but one guy in particular, Henry Dawes, is really one of the folks to blame. The whole purpose behind this, right, was to minimize the geographic footprint, the cultural footprint of many of these nations, right? He even said in a conference with a bunch of other elite white people who were patting themselves on the back for the sort of prosperity America was at that time experiencing in the late 1880s and going to experience saying like, look, we just need to assimilate all these dudes. So that way there's no distinction between us. And so what they did was that they empowered this guy named Dawes to create a commission that would go through and identify who was Creek enough to be considered Creek. And what it meant in many cases, which transports to today is that oftentimes, even sometimes through eyeballing people, 
right? They would, would kind of look at some folks and be like, you know what? You might be too black to be considered a full blood member of this nation or to be on the by blood roles, right? The kind of citizenship roles. But rather, we're going to kind of create a different class of people and call them Creek freedmen, even if none of you actually had the stain or experience of slavery in your bloodline, in your, in your ancestry, or even now, we're going to label all of you as freedmen. If we, if we determine that the look of you, right, might lead one of us to believe that you are too Black to become Creek. So all of a sudden, Blackness just became diluted. Now, to the Creek Nation, none of this really mattered, right? Like, they had their own customs and traditions. They were not fond of losing, like the other nations, 90 million acres of land that they had before, right? Because mm-hmm. all this did was it allowed the Dawes Commission to say, oh, you know what? Now that you are Creek, we're going to give you a certain amount of land. We're, we're going to disrupt this communal way of living. We're going to privatize it completely so that you are like us, the, the white dudes, right? Right. And so then you transport many years into the future, but only 43 years ago, and being a Creek freedman was enough to disqualify you from being considered a member of the Creek Nation, right? So something that happened, you know, over a hundred years ago, introduced by white guys, this thing called blood quantum allowed a distinction in race within a nation to be created such that blackness became a disqualifier or a dilutive agent in being who you've always known yourself to be, who your ancestors have always known themselves to be. That's what blood quantum is. That's why it's still playing a role. So you're directionally, you were you right. were there, Tracy. I'm proud. Okay. Of you. I'm super proud. <laughs> Thank you, Caleb. <laughs> but so so then, but to the thing that I thought that means that you can't just. I mean, at least in the let's not do all sovereign nations, but like in the sense of the Creek Nation, you can't just say I want to be Creek and I think I'm Creek and be Creek. You have to prove exactly, and that goes for any Creek person, black or otherwise, there still is a point. Like like a person couldn't just go up to them and be like, I want to join the nation. Correct, right? Like, is there immigration into these nations? Like, is that a thing that people can do? Can you become a citizen? Like, you could become a citizen of the United States or no? So historically, right, when this nation, like many others, right, were, were kind of becoming confederated, right, where there mm-hmm. were a bunch of different tribes within what is now considered the Creek Nation, the Cherokee Nation, right? There were processes and customs whereby people became part of it, right? And historically, mm-hmm. right, like the, even that's, that's what kind of shows you the creativity of their notions around identity that like I historically, let's say in the early 1800s could have been a slave, but then entered the Creek Nation through a marriage or through some form of adoption and I would lose every stain of slavery. Right. Whereas right. it seems like even in this country, we're still living with those stains today. Right. Yeah. So to some, yeah, to so to some great extent, right. Like you do have to be able to prove your ancestry on particular roles. And if your ancestry happens, if some of your ancestors landed on the Creek Freedman role, right. Which again, a distinction that didn't matter to folks when it was happening and being created, it matters a whole hell of a lot today. And that would essentially invalidate your claim, regardless of how much you could demonstrate, right? Regardless right. of how much you can show. 
Right. And even before Dawes and the blood quantum and all of this, there's a character, a person in the book, Cow Tom, shout out, Cow Tom the homie, um, who, who along with some other black people who were part of Creek Nation, made a, I don't even, it's more than concerted effort. They, they made certain over time, they were committed to this, that the, the black people who were part of the Creek Nation, whether they had been slaves or had married in or had just been part of the community for, for years and years through whatever means. I, I mean, in Cow Tom's place, he his family says that he was never a slave and that he just worked for some guy, mm-hmm. though the record of the white people says that he that he was a slave. A whole conversation, <laughs> which it could be another podcast also. Um, but. Cow Tom and the homies were like, the black folks need to be citizens. So like in addition to what happened that nobody cared about at the time with Dawes, previous to this, there was some foresight of like, we're in this nation. Fuck what you have to say. We built this shit. Cow Tom was like a leader in the nation. And, you know, we follow his family in the book and you get to see how his family and his descendants were also leaders and thrived within the nation in many different ways. That's not a question either. I just wanted to th- shout out to Cow Tom and and just say that like there was before all of this happened in the 1970s, there were people in the 1800s that were like, let's just make sure we get that citizenship mark, please. We want that blue check for citizenship. Yeah, 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 <laughs> and yeah. We need it locked in. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, I sort of teased, and I don't, I really don't want to talk about this because I feel like for me in my reading of the book, there is a person who is the reason that the Black Creeks officially lost their standing in Creek Nation. And I sort of don't want to spoil that because for me, it was like a very important moment in the book because it, like we talked about earlier, sort of changed what I thought. It's not who I thought it was going to be. It's Mm -hmm. not how I thought it was going to play out. So we're going to skip over that person completely. I just, for people who are reading it, I really want to protect your experience. At the time in the 70s, when this changed in Creek, in the 1970s, when this changed in Creek Nation, do you have any idea what percent of the Creeks were kicked out of the nation? Like how many Black Creeks who had been on the freedmen rolls mm. were removed? Like what percent, do you have any, like was it hundreds of people? Was it thousands of people? Was it yeah. 10 people? Yeah, yeah. So in terms of proportions, it's difficult, right? Like in right. Uh, kind of a preemptive census back in like 1890, right? It was mm-hmm. estimated that like some 13 or more percent of the folks walking around were black um, that were a part of the Creek Nation. Um, and it, it, it kind of compelled, they were living well, right? It compelled some folks that were kind of the predecessors to the U.S. census as we consider it today being like, whoa, this might, this part of Oklahoma's eastern part of Oklahoma might be the best hope for the Negro, as they would say. Right. But as time goes on, right, there's a large amount of people who who then came from those 1300 or so. So like, we know that it's it's in the thousands most likely, especially if we were to consider them today, but no real estimate as to like the, the proportion of those who are once citizens who are now no longer citizens. Right. And then as far as the Creek people who were on the by blood rolls, have you heard from those people either about this book or like what was their response when this group of people, the, the the people who are on the Freedman rolls or the mixed blood rolls were kicked out of the nation. Like, was there a feeling of like, this is our community still? Like, we're upset about this? Like, that I, that part, I don't believe, was in the book. So I'm curious, like, what the by blood people, what their response was, and if you've heard from any people directly about your book. Yeah, so I was in Tulsa for the first, like, official stop on the book tour. Okay. Um, one of the folks who came was a guy named Eli Grayson, um, who is a member of the, the Creek Nation and who, who's, you know, family members, Joy Harjo. Right. And if you look at Eli, you'd be like, do I dap you up or do I shake your hand? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. He's been an advocate for many years for the re-inclusion of Friedman. Right. And it kind of goes to show perhaps like the the questionable nature of Mm -hmm. those divisions right 
Um, but one thing that, you know, I think he really kind of wanted to be able to understand is that, you know, there is, there is a sense and a real one that I really want to lift up and affirm that like folks who have been told what they must be are at times tired of being told who they mm. then must include. Right. Mm. And I, I think that like, to some extent, right, there is hope that sits right around those folks, right, with the Cherokee Nation, the Seminole Nation, kind of the Cherokee Nation in particular, losing its case to a bunch of Cherokee freedmen led by people like Marilyn Van, who are now re-included in that nation, or at least given a pathway for citizenship on the same kind of bases that a lot of Creek freedmen are asking for that same inclusion. But when you hear from folks, it's like, look, like we have been told what we are. We have been mm. like, when's the last time you or I, Tracy, have like had people say, oh, let me see your papers, right? Or right. like, can you talk to me about what percentage American you are, right? Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. like to some extent, it's 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 worthy to be affirmed the desire to kind of self-determine, especially <laughs> if if we are purported to believe that these are sovereign nations, right? right. So it's it's difficult. And I, I think I didn't want the reader to ever approach this thinking that the solutions are easy or that the response would be warm, right? right? I rather wanted people to be situated directly in the sort of complications that a bastardized form of history kind of creates. Right. Okay. So one of the things this book did for me, and I think other readers that I spoke to, it's it brings up a lot of like, what if? situations about right now, you know, and like, (laughs) yeah, I mean, there's a big question in the book is like, can you be fully black and fully Creek? Um, And I think, you know, to make this about me, (laughs) my, my fucking podcast, if you don't want to hear about me, get, create your own. Um, Or, you know, the way that I'm thinking about the world is like, can anyone who is not white and does not buy into white America be fully American. Mm. You know, like I think about like, it makes me think about like a lot of the anti-Asian violence we've been seeing recently. And like the way that we talk about people who are American, but call them Asian American or black American, just like calling someone a black Creek Mm -hmm. that is in and of itself, that use of language is, you know, demarcating those yes. people as something other. Yes. Um, I'm a black American, but I would argue that my family has been here a lot longer than a lot of white American families. My mm-hmm. dad's side much longer than my white mom's side, mm-hmm. you know? And so it, it just made me think a lot about like what happens if, you know, not to be so bleak, but the world is horrible. But like what happens if the Supreme Court decides something about citizenship Mm -hmm. like am i considered a freedman american Mm -hmm. am i kicked out of the nation even Mm -hmm. though i've been here and i've been raised american and i've been i've been american like there's one thing to think about that's like black people are second class citizens in this country which we all know but it's another thing to think about what does that actually mean if there is a citizenship test yeah 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 no i think that the way in which I would reframe it is that those hyphenates add to the beauty. Yes. They don't add to any sort of dilution. They're not, they're not. Well, I think it depends on who's, 
oh, from for whose sure. angle. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think what this I think what this work is arguing for is that it, even in examining what happened in the Creek Nation, where black Creek, it's all good. Your yeah. your ancestry, your who you are, um, doesn't necessarily make you other. I think people then have kind of wrested control in many cases, right, of the ability to label and then assigning to that either proximity to power or distance from it, and then also value, right? When in actuality, mm -hmm. I think all of these things lead to a more interesting tapestry. It's why like the book kind of concludes with asking people not so much to not give up on America, but rather mm -hmm. your vision for America. And I, I wrote that not necessarily talking, hint, hint, to the white dudes. I primarily wrote that <laughs> to those of us who've ever existed on the margins where our identity in some form has been the subject of some sort of Supreme Court conversation, debate, sure. hearing, case, et cetera, right? I wrote it such that I don't really know if America is much without us, right? right. And I don't know if the legacy and history of our existence as protest, our decision to thrive as protest. I don't know how much of America um, is America without those experiences. So those hyphenates, I think, hopefully are reclaimed as power, not distancing right. or otherizing. Sure. I think I feel more powerful because I'm Black and American. Same. But I guess my point was more like the people who don't value us will use the hyphenate to lessen us. That's what I meant. I, I mean, listen, I'm not trading in my blackness for anything. <laughs> not that I could, but I wouldn't. Okay. There's one more thing that came up and then we have to talk about your process. Sure. I could not stop thinking about 40 acres and a mule mm. reading this book. I know that that promise of 40 acres and a mule was obviously not fulfilled. For people who don't know, when the Civil War ended, there was a promise from the government that Black people would be given 40 acres and a mule. Um, didn't happen. But I couldn't stop thinking about the what if of that. Because mm -hmm. when we get into Cow Tom's descendants, Jake Simmons, senior and junior, and they have land, and they have a way towards wealth, and they have upward mobility and they have all of these things that were bestowed upon them because of all the things that had been taken from the Creek Nation. It made me think about the rest of the Black people in America and like what could have been and what should have been and what was told would be. And it just is like, it's such a devastating what if to mm -hmm. think about. And obviously we know in some places where Black people did create wealth and power what happened obviously tulsa mm -hmm. which is in the book wilmington um i mean just watts like <laughs> everywhere there's so many to list but yeah. i i just couldn't stop thinking about that like original 40 acres and a mule of it all again not a question <laughs> just just that's the thing that has haunted me yeah. about your book in a lot of ways as like the lies and the promises that were broken and the like way that it forces us non-white people to then become this sort of like crabs in a barrel mentality. Like yeah. the, 
the taking away of the opportunity is just was really it was hard. Yeah. The, the book is almost an analog or the inverse of disinvestment, right? Right. Like the mm-hmm. provision of opportunity by birthright is mm-hmm. like hard to even. And I still, I mean, I wrote it, yet I still struggle with like understanding it at a deep level, mm-hmm. at almost a personal level, right? Because it's just so not the experience that I had growing up, not the experience you had. It's not the experience that most Black people have had. So right. the perhaps it's, getting us to then rethink it and to do so with very concrete examples that offers us the best chance to start to think about how we articulate what's at stake now Mm -hmm. for repairing Mm -hmm. for the damage done to so many people who are in fact black, right? Like that, that's the, that's hopefully what it does do. Hopefully it does. I'm glad to hear that it haunts you. Like I hope it haunts so many others to think about what we were promised, Mm -hmm. how, what we were promised, was ripped away and perhaps right what could be if we took off the dis from disinvestment but we actually invested in in right. those who have who <laughs> whose whose histories here have been so beleaguered with the united states government systematically depriving us of what we were owed right so yeah. oh i'm glad to hear that it haunted you i'm sad <laughs> that it yeah that it's still that that's haunts. the truth yeah yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. Painful. okay the cover is that Cow Tom? No, no. There's we... two guys on there. Legis Perriman, who I write quite a bit about in the book, um, who's a two-time chief of the Creek Nation um, and indistinguishably Black, and then Silas Jefferson as well. Got it. Got it. I was just curious about that. Okay. You are a person who has like 90 jobs. You've gone to like 9,000 important fancy schools. You're a real nerd. We love this for all of us. Very proud of you for being like top tier nerd on this podcast. Love, love, love. How did you make time to write this book? Where did you write? How many hours a day? How often? Do you listen to music? Do you do it in the house? Did you go out into the world? Snacks, beverages, rituals? Tell us about it. Wow, that's a lot of them. Um... (laughs) Well, any of the things that apply. Sure. Yeah. So I I started really writing this book or at least contemplating what it would look like to write this book during business school. And okay. for your for your listeners, like I did not like business school, specifically okay. business school that I attended. Okay. Are we naming names or no? Sure. I went to I went to Harvard Business School and it was more about the accrual of like how much are you willing to spend to be like all of the folks who go to Yacht Week and whatnot. And that that just didn't jive with me. Um, so I began a lot of conceptual work there, but because I have this nagging habit to eat um, and because like I lived in New York and all that, like I had to be able to continue to service this habit of eating. So I went to Boston Consulting Group, which meant that I, you know, Monday morning at like, 5 a.m. I was on a flight to who knows where and would come back Thursday night after having worked 14 hours every day. So I had to develop somewhat of a practice, which was rather monastic. So like I wrote everywhere. Um, My ideal state would be like to write on a beach or in a mountain or something of that nature. But I (laughs) never got that chance when I was writing most of this book. I wrote it on planes. I wrote it in cars. I wrote it you know, in the back offices of some Fortune 500 company that we were consulting with, I ate what was around 
<laughs> which usually wasn't healthy. So I don't have anything inspirational to provide. To oh, it's not supposed front. to be inspirational. It's supposed <laughs> to be delicious. I get mad when people tell me a fruit or a vegetable. So please. yeah, the beauty, the beauty though, of being in consulting is that you can expense all mm. of these snacks to companies that make more money than God. And so as such, I was egregious in like ordering mm-hmm. things that I would never order now, now that I'm not working there. Like no, like what? Oh man. Well, there was a case that I did in Dallas that was right across the street from Nobu. Um, okay. So like, did I expense a black cod thing? Yes. yes. Um, mm-hmm. All of the time. Mm-hmm. Egregiously. Okay. It was awful. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I wrote so everywhere good, whenever I could and stuck it to the man whoever that is, I'm air quoting like crazy for the listeners, primarily because how I do it. And I used to wake up around four in the morning every day, right until about 8.30, because after 8.30, you could be up until two in the morning working, but just continually got up every single morning at 4 a.m. And we're right four and a half hours just to kind of get through. Oh my God. But if you were up till 2 a.m., then you got like no sleep. It was really unhealthy and it really pissed off my now wife. <laughs> yeah. I'm annoyed for you, for her and you. Okay. But so if you're working like that and you're working 8.30 a.m. to 2 a.m. some days and then writing from 4 a.m. to 8.30 a.m., how are you tapping into your creativity? Like how are you finding that space in your brain sure. to write this beautiful book? Well, first of all, thank you for calling it beautiful. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> what did Erica Badu say? I'm an artist. I'm sensitive about my... Sensitive? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So I think like jobs like consulting and investment banking and, and the like are not jobs, I would say, that tap into your creative spirit. They don't feed your creative soul. And so as such, like this was my way of hanging on, right? Mm. Because I hated those jobs. Um, Mm -hmm. and I didn't feel as if I was getting anything out of it, but the ability to buy my wife an engagement ring, right? Like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so to mm -hmm. some extent, like it was incredibly transactional. And with this work, it didn't feel transactional. It felt like a higher calling. And so now that I have been able to kind of craft a life in which I am not doing those things anymore, Mm -hmm. right? I feel as if my soul is that much more enriched, but like I... I was holding on for dear life and the way that I held on was doing something completely and totally non-transactional, which was hopefully amplifying stories that like the world I felt like need to know. Mm. Okay. You went to Oxford or something? I did. I'm Tracy. I'm like the son of Jamaican. So like degree Jamaican immigrants. So like you have to do all the degrees. Okay, well, <laughs> let's bring you back down to earth then. What's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Woo, all of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> Take that, uh, Oxford. Cool education. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man, like, relieve, relive, oh. um, perceive. Okay, so you're um, an IE guy. I before E except after C just like doesn't work in my brain yeah. at all. Well, like all the words like that. Yeah. And it's also like not an actual reliable rule like ever. So Thank it's you. so it's it's a disrespectful little rhyme that like someone came up with and then was like, don't fact check. Don't fact check. Pisses me off every time. Yeah. I'm a terrible speller. And so I love when people who have gone to places like Oxford and Harvard are like, I can't spell words either. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Do you, this is such a rude question, but I always like to ask, and you can tell me, no, I refuse to respond. Uh, I refuse to forget. Um, What comes next? Do you have any idea what's next? 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm diving into the what if, okay. right? But um, so I'm I'm writing a book that's tentatively titled Push Ahead, which is about one of the characters that or people that you meet in the book very briefly named Edward McCabe, the kind of first black statewide elected politician mm. in in the the history of the old west um who essentially crusades on the idea of trying to colonize indian territory which then becomes oklahoma for black people and at the same time proposes that he might be the best governor of this new state mm. and tries to convince president Gen- benjamin harrison and a whole lot of others to do so um, and fails in such drastic fashion in some important sense, but to some great sense, inspires the creation of many Black towns, Oklahoma's lone historically Black college and university, and really puts front and center whether or not ambition will be enough to make us fully belong. Did you think that you would write about this time period? <laughs> no, but I just like can't get over okay some of these people. Yeah, I, I there's some time periods that I'm like really obsessed with, like I like to read about. And so I was just wondering if this was something like you always knew or if it was like once you got into it, you were just like, these people are with me now. Yeah. Um, who's the coolest person to express interest in this book? Oh man. I mean, it's probably a tie between like Dr. Ibram Kendi and uh, Kiese Lehman. Yeah. But I think it's because I just, I love, love Kiese for so many reasons yeah. at an interpersonal level. So like when he said that this was like a new standard in bookmaking, I may or may not have cried oh. a lot. <laughs> this is like basically just a Kiese fan podcast, if I'm being honest. Like he's <laughs> one of the heroes of my life. He's just such a great person. And, um and- Okay, for people who love We Refuse to Forget, what is a book or some books that you might recommend to them that are maybe in conversation with this work or will help them understand or just anything that you think is a good companion piece for whatever reason? Yeah, I have some of the books here. I just keep next to me all of the time. (laughs) Um, So I think like for like a very broad history, that's actually very well written, right? The Road to Disappearance by Andrew DeBow. Anything that Dr. Taya Miles, um, who wrote All That She Carried, but also has written like things like The Ties That Bind and herself is of Cherokee descent, but also a Black woman. Um, anything that she has written. Okay. And then All the While by Elena Roberts. But I think also kind of the what if, right, considerations it really leads one to like think about Paradise by Toni Morrison, right, for the fictional approach to some of this work, as well as to people like idea Hartman, right, um, who really kind of takes on the fabulous literature to help think through what the archives could be. Um, mm. So yeah, those those women, essentially, okay. predominantly Black women are the ones I, I would say this book is maybe not so much in conversation with, as much as I hope and aspire <laughs> that it's in conversation with. Okay, I love this aspiration. Um, last question. If you could have any person, dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? Oh, man, I'm a jerk. <laughs> um, I'd really want, not because I want his approval, I just want to see the like pain and angst on their faces. So it's a trio. Okay. I want George Washington to read this book <laughs> and feel like the jerk that he is or was. 
I want Andrew Johnson and Andrew Jackson to read this. I want Benjamin Hawkins to read this. I just want a lot of folks who have done so much harm mm -hmm. to kind of read about how how much I want people to remember them for all of they were and the damage that they did. Very vindictive on my part. But yes, that's, this is a pro-petty podcast. So <laughs> thank you for ending in the spirit of this show. Pettiness, vindictiveness. We never forget. We refuse to forget, people. We are out here for the founding fathers and their friends. Um, Caleb, Gail, ladies and gentlemen, we refuse to forget. Out now, wherever you get your books, get your copy. It is fantastic. If you get caught up in the beginning, push through. Trust me, I was you. I'm happy I made it to the end. Uh, Caleb, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. It means so much. Yay. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Caleb Gale for joining the show. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to the wonderful Ashley Garland for helping make this episode possible. Reminder, the Stacks Book Club pick for July is Season of Migration to the North by Tayeb Salih, which we will discuss on July 27th with Elamine Abdel Mahmoud. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you subscribe to The Stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music comes from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 